Yeah, so today, um, after last week's message, um, I actually had some people kind of ask me some questions. Can we turn the speaker lights on, guys? Is that okay? Thank you. Not that I'm worth looking at. It's just for online people. <laughs> um, yeah, so today I, I, I want to unpack some teaching on the fivefold ministry. Um, that's in Ephesians chapter 4. So last week after my message, you know, I had some people ask some questions about what is the fivefold ministry and how does it work. And so, you know, I thought if we're going to talk about apostolic and prophetic worship and pastoral and evangelistic worship, I, I realized that maybe not everyone has the same grid or, or kind of understanding. And so I thought today what I would do is I'm going to just do some teaching, just a, a basic overview on the fivefold ministry. And, and before I begin, I just want to say that I uh, do not possess all knowledge concerning the fivefold ministry. I've been studying this subject with lots of different levels of intensity through the years, but what I'm going to share today, it is a combination of my studies, uh, my experiences, my own revelation, and other uh, fivefold member uh, people's experiences, and also, you know, what I've read and studied in, in books from others who have written on this subject. So I, I want to say, again, I, I haven't cornered the market on Revelation concerning fivefold ministry, but I think I know a couple of things, so maybe a couple of things I'm going to share with you today. And as I teach on this subject, <coughs> excuse me. I'm probably going to describe things in, again, very clear-cut, straightforward way when, in fact, every person is different in how he or she expresses their calling, okay? So I'm going to make very definitive statements, but we know there's nuance in every gift of the fivefold ministry. And so if I say something, you go, well, that's not, I don't see that in that person or this person. Well, okay, relax. <laughs> there's, there's nuance in how God, you know, um, God distributes his gift and how he works it out as, as far as that person's mission in the world. You know, all, I, I think, and I'm going to talk about apostles, but a common thought we have about apostles is all they do is plant churches, they do plant churches, but that's not all they do. In fact, there are several apostles that are, uh, and when I say apostle, I mean little a, okay? Um, but there are apostles who plant things like houses of prayer. Mike Bickle, I think, is one of these guys. Hasn't planted a single church, but he's apostolic. So, I'm getting ahead of myself. But my goal is to, again, I want to just, I want to lay a foundation of what the fivefold in, is a, way, in, in a way that we can easily discern it and understand their function. And so one of the ways that I like to think about the fivefold ministry is it's kind of like high school, right? You know, when we went to public high school, um, we did not have just one person influencing our education, did we? Right? We had several people who were specialists who were focused on one specific area of education, right? I mean, none of us had just an English teacher for an entire year. No one spent the entire 11th grade studying only math, 
What we had every year was usually a math teacher, an English teacher, a science teacher, a history teacher, whatever, you know, depending on the courses you were taking. And if you remember, almost every one of us, every student, unless you just hated school altogether, but, and I had some years like that, <laughs> maybe all of them, I don't know, well, we're not going to talk about that. But most students had a favorite subject, right? Um, band was mine. That was it. It was the only class I got A's in <laughs> every single semester. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, you know, we all have that favorite subject. And so if we could have just studied like that one subject all day long, you know, we would have been happy, Right. Like, oh, yeah, if I could have just done music all, you know, for six periods a day. Oh, how glorious would that be? Well, it'd make me happy. But if that were the case, it'd also make me incompetent. The fact is, we need a little bit of math and a little bit of English. We need some science. We need some history to be successful in life, right? That's why they're all required for graduation. Well, the same thing applies in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Everyone say built up. Until we all reach unity. Say unity. In the faith and in the knowledge, everyone say knowledge, of the Son of God and become mature, say mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, if this was a mission statement for uh, a school, it would probably read something like it was he who gave some to be math teachers. Some to be English teachers, some to be science teachers, some to be history and social studies teachers to prepare all people for works of service so that the human race may be built up. So based on Ephesians 4, we cannot ignore the fact that all five gifts come from Jesus. And all five gifts that come from Christ, are required to have an influence in our lives if we ever hope to grow up and become mature followers of Christ. And yes, every one of us will probably have a favorite subject. But we need the influence of each of these gifts in our life so that we can be mature Christians. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us just a brief overview of each of the functions of these five gifts from Jesus. And so I want to start with apostles. Now, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he told them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' instructions were designed to teach his disciples to long for heaven on earth. And so it is this 
core value it, that is the primary objective of apostles' ministry. Apostolic leaders are focused on heaven. And their mission is to see heaven's supernatural reality established in the earth. And so having this motivation at the foundation of a church leads to an entirely different emphasis in the church's governing priorities. Because the apostle will make the presence of God, the worship of God, and the agenda of heaven the top priorities in the environment. An apostolic government is designed to protect these priorities. Now, the apostle Paul, he actually refers to himself as a master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. And the word that is used in the Greek is the, uh, for master builder is the Greek word architecton, which is where we derive our English word architect. And so it is this picture of God giving blueprints to apostles to reproduce Heaven on the earth. And along with these blueprints, the anointing carried by apostles contains a quality that stimulates and draws to the surface the various anointings of the people in that environment. And so as those who are in that apostolic uh, environment and in that apostolic culture around those apostolic people uh, begin uh, to manifest their own unique anointings. It creates, you know, if, if apostolic leadership is like the, the master builder or the contractor, then as everyone's gifts get stirred up and activated, they become like these subcontractors that are all doing their specific part to bring heaven to earth. And so in an apostolic environment, it is an exciting place because the focus on heaven, it allows things like prayer and worship and miracles and signs and wonders. It helps all of those things start to become normal in our daily lives. Now, there is one particular area that the role of the apostle is uh, not necessarily designed to address directly very well. And it is the needs of people. In fact, let's read in Acts chapter 6 and see how the apostles responded when they were confronted with the needs of the people. It says in verse 1, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. 
we will turn this responsibility over to them and we and and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word so as i just said there are some pitfalls that come along with apostolic ministry when apostles begin to pursue their calling And if they do not have other ministry graces in place, several real issues can actually creep into the environment and and threaten uh, the the flow of God and the effectiveness of that ministry. Some of those things are like unusual manifestations that are not found in the Bible. Um, Unprecedented scenarios and styles there can actually become an uncomfortable focus on the supernatural. And uh, there starts to be this inattention to the needs of the people. It begins to create, and, and that, that inattention can actually start to create friction. And so what ends up happening is the people begin to see a growing distance between them and the apostolic ministry. And as the people's needs go unmet, they begin to resent the way apostles choose to use their time. Now, this may seem petty, but it's a real complaint. And it moves people away from apostolic leaders and apostolic environments after a a while. Open heavens and open back doors are the sweet and sour of the apostolic ministry. Which is why apostles have to have the rest of the five-fold team in place. Next in line we're going to talk about is the prophet. The prophet is the next vital piece in the government of a kingdom culture, a revival culture. See, the foundation is incomplete without the presence of the prophetic anointing. And it is a role that God definitely emphasizes throughout scriptures. In fact, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20 says, Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in His prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. Our success, our prosperity. And I know that's a buzzword. And when I say prosperity, I'm not talking just money, 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 money. Okay? I'm talking about prosperity in life, prosperity in relationships, prosperity in my soul, prosperity, doing well at work, doing well in school, doing well with my children, raising them in the Lord, doing well in my marriage. Prosperity goes so much further than just money and stuff. 
But our prosperity, our success, it comes through our agreements with heaven's culture. And so the prophet's role is to clarify the reality of heaven's culture and to invite us to enter in. Therefore, success is built when we value the prophetic voice in our environment. And our experience at New Covenant, um, there's been a lot of prophetic voices. People like Dennis Kramer, Kirk Bennett. Anyone ever heard of Sean Bowles? Right here, before he was Sean Bowles. We've had Mahesh Shavda. Bob Schreckengoss, Bill Dickerson, Jeremy Karras, as well as our very own prophetic team right here in this church. You know, at the very start of New Covenant, uh, Lynn Furrow, he brought a team of men down. And during the course of a weekend, uh, this group uh, spoke on behalf of God concerning the very DNA of this church. What we were to do. Who we were to focus on. Almost everything we are doing today is a reflection of how we are contending for what the Lord has said about New Covenant Worship Center through prophetic voices. So the role of the prophet is to cultivate our expectation of discovering the heights and the depths of the good news. Now listen, the gospel is more than the words on the pages of Scripture. It is a reality that must unfold in the life of every single believer. And one of the primary ways that it does so is through prophetic ministry that apprehends the promises of the kingdom and the individual destinies, and they call them into reality through declaration. Now, another aspect of the leadership and influence of prophets is to cultivate our expectation for God to come. You see, apostles, they keep us believing, but prophets keep us expecting that God is going to do something. He's coming. He's on his way. And, the deny, and so the, the dynamic ways in which God speaks to the prophet which includes things like dreams and visions. It helps create uh, an awareness of God's involvement with us. And these supernatural tools, they introduce an infusion of sensitivity toward heaven's activity and toward heaven's plans for us. But more than just making us aware of heaven through uh, his or her experience, the anointing on the prophet actually equips us to have our own heavenly experiences. Matthew 10, 41, it says, Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet 
will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person a, as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So the reward is to see and hear what the Spirit is doing and saying. So the prophetic anointing carries a seer dimension, like seeing. And it gives people sight to see what was invisible prior to the prophet's influence, right? How many times do we get a prophetic word and we could see things a little clearer? How many times did that prophetic word prepare us for a day down the road when we went through something? And it helped us see through the, the, the attack or the clutter or the chaos. It's the influence of the prophet. And Jesus, who modeled the office of the prophet, he gave supernatural sight to others all day long. Like Mark 8, 17 was a common question he often asked his disciples and those around him. Right? It says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And guess what the disciples' answer always was? No. <laughs> we don't see it. We don't get it. And it was always no because Jesus was introducing an entirely different view of life. But that question led those same people to begin looking for something they had never considered seeing before. And as a result, they did receive eyes to see. So, apostles and prophets, they get along famously. Both of them look into heaven and seek to replicate here on earth what they see there. They work together like a bow and arrow aimed at the same goal. And undoubtedly, this is why they are part of the foundation of the New Testament church. Now next in the flow of the fivefold, we have of heaven coming to earth, we have the teacher. The teacher is generally accepted as the highest anointing level in the American church. But according to 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it's actually third. It says, that God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Because the church mostly focuses on teaching as the highest and most important gift, the church has become just average in its effect and influence. And here's why. The current church culture places a high value on uh, the sense of security that we experience when we can prove the rightness of what we have devoted our lives to. 
we have developed a belief that in order to be allowed or able to proclaim our faith, we have this assumption that we must be able to argue our case to a logical conclusion every time. In reality, our need for so much certainty, I think, comes from the great uncertainty that arises when God's presence seems to be absent from our midst. When heaven stops manifesting in and through the church, Christians are left with just a need to prove somehow that they are reasonable in following Jesus. You see, when the, when the power of the gospel is replaced by our arguments, everyone should be concerned. You see, when cancer and paralysis, you know, we were seeing cancer, paralysis, tumors, mental illness, when these things leave people's bodies and minds, no one needs an argument. I was blind. And now I can see everything. A person experiencing the touch of heaven is proof enough that Jesus is who he says he is. And so when the church predominantly insists on a logical culture, well, then we start to demand a purely logical gospel. And what do we do when that happens? We turn to teachers. So many teachers, many teachers can be fixated only on the written word of God. And sometimes their value for the word of God is much higher than their need for the presence of God and the supernatural work of the kingdom of God. So the teacher usually has this deep, driving need to be right. And predominantly, we'll see the world in terms of scriptural and non-scriptural. But because the teacher is focused on the Word, then the anointing of the teacher actually influences us as the church to do the same. Now listen, here's what I'm not saying. I am not devaluing the Word of God. Listen, it is absolutely 100% important and foundational. It is important, and we're in a season where we are really starting, we need to turn our heart to it more. So that is not what I'm talking about. I am not talking about, well, you don't need your Bible. That is a lie. Leviathan is in your head. If you heard that, I cast it out in Jesus' name. But in much of the body of Christ, teachers have turned away from the supernatural power and presence of God, which has led to a lot of ineffectiveness in the proclamation of the gospel. So when the teacher is the primary influence in the church, our tendency is to focus on the letter of the law.
And then what happens is we pull apart the body of Christ. Because when we focus only on the word without the movement of the spirit, we start fighting amongst ourselves. And that fighting starts to tear apart the church. Because why? Because when it's the letter of the law, there's a right only and a wrong. And every teacher is compelled to be right. <laughs> First Corinthians 4.15 For even if you uh, had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. So Paul is telling us here in this passage that we, there are teachers. And we have lots and lots of teachers. And when teachers disagree, and many do, we end up with division. So now, what is the role of the teacher in the church? Well, in order for teachers to play their true role in church culture, they first have to be willing to pursue a supernatural lifestyle. They will have to become dissatisfied with the, only the ar armor of their arguments. They have to become dissatisfied with lifeless theology which means they've got to risk failure and embrace mystery. So the anointing on teachers will always cause them to place uh, this beautiful high value on the word and on education. In fact, they tend to believe that most problems are solved by just training people more according to Scripture. But real change comes when sound biblical teaching is under the influence of an apostolic and prophetic culture. Because in a supernatural culture, teachers will begin to teach with supernatural results. When Jesus taught crowds about the kingdom of heaven, he always showed them the kingdom of heaven. His disciples were immersed in a never-ending classroom experience. I mean, Jesus took show and tell to a whole nother level. And so as teachers, we have to put the show back into the lesson plan. Teachers have to take the, the passion and the revelation that comes from uh, apostolic and prophetic ministry and show us how it becomes practical, applicable truth in our lives. So the role of the teacher is to help replicate the processes of the supernatural and then train and equip the church to cooperate with those processes. Love of the scripture and knowledge that teachers carry helps them communicate complex things, complex processes in a simple application, simple analogies. Someone who I think does this really well is Randy Clark of Global Awakening. 
That man is both an apostle and a teacher. And he's a prime example, I think, of this type of communication. He, he uses his understanding of Scripture to connect the supernatural to practical daily life. I mean, his models for training people to pray for the sick are excellent. They're highly effective. And he uses these methods when he's mobilizing prayer teams for ministry, when he's out speaking in large groups and at big services and crusades. A culture that is maturing the saints, it has to have teachers who perpetuate the supernatural. The days of teaching our limited experiences are over. We must learn how, we must, we must learn to teach how and what heaven is doing every day to everyone. All right, let's talk about pastors. In case you didn't notice, the word pastor isn't even mentioned in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It's not there. So how is it that senior pastor has become the title of the most important person in the church? Well, I have a hunch. You see, when a group comes together, it isn't long before that group organizes itself in such a way as to get its needs met. Imagine a survival scene, right? Maybe from a movie or a show or something. And the ship crashes and they're on an island or the plane crashed and, you know, they're survivors. The steps are usually the same in each and every one of those scenarios. The priorities always become food, water, shelter, fire, safety. And then once that's done... Hope for rescue. Now, the longer the rescue delays, the more another priority develops, and we, the questions start to come up. Who is going to lead us? All right? And in the beginning, the nod usually goes to the one who has the most aggressive plan to save the group. Like, <laughs> That's crazy, but it sounds like a winner, so we're going with. But, but if that doesn't work, then long-term survival begins to kick into the brain. And when long-term survival becomes the focus, then they pick a leader for the long haul. And it is usually the most compassionate, steady practical, and predictable person in the group. This leader will make sure that the needs of the people are met. He will ensure that they remain civilized and safe. He will become their pastor. So pastors emerge as long-term leaders when all hope of rescue is gone. 
People gather around leaders that they believe will tend to their particular needs. I mean, and this tendency, it shows up in politics, it shows up in business, and it certainly has shown up in the church. If the people's primary focus is on themselves, then they will elect a leader who has the same focus as I do. It's as simple as that. And so if the pastor is not connected to apostolic and prophetic ministry, then their leadership will only lead people back to a self-focus. And the pastor will have to give them a natural alternative to a supernatural life. When a pastoral anointing is the primary uh, leadership anointing of a church, the people will then begin to expect to be the center of the universe. And unfortunately, the pastor thrives in that expectation, at least for a little while. But when the pastoral anointing is connected to the apostolic and the prophetic, then it provides now another vital piece to the flow from, of heaven to the earth. These uh, caring and compassionate leaders, they are the necessary solution to the backdoor problem that apostles and prophets have in their leadership environments. See, pastors in a kingdom culture, in a revival culture, they bring leadership to the people. These are the leaders who will be in the lives, in the homes, in the families. These are the leaders who will sit with them and help work out marriage problems. These are the leaders who will, uh, who will know about people's struggles and with employment or raising teenagers. And if pastors can learn to maintain a dual focus on heaven and on people, they will be the ones who bring a heavenly culture to the everyday lives of the saints. Maintaining this balanced focus, it is work. Because pastors naturally want the people to feel loved and, and discipled and connected and protected. And so pastors do a, this beautiful job of bringing the nourishing presence of God into the lives of people. They connect people to the supernatural environment that gets created by apostolic and prophetic ministry. And so instead of leading people to themselves and then showing them the love they have for people who are hurting, pastors in this culture began to lead people into the presence of God to find the solutions for life's problems. It is the pastor's good pleasure to see the saints find the green pastures of freedom and comfort that are made available through apostolic ministry. Now, let's look at evangelists. And because I, I think most of us are very familiar with the evangelists, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brief. On this, but the evangelist is the final piece in heaven invading the earth. 
the design of the evangelist is to ensure that heaven's flow that comes from through apostles, through prophets, then to teachers, then to the pastor, they make sure that it reaches its intended target. Those held in darkness. The evangelist's anointing causes his or her primary concern and ministry motivation to become the souls of those who do not know Jesus. And realistically, unless the ministry of the church is reaching those who don't yet know the Lord, then I have to ask, what's the point? What's the point? We must have the ministry of the evangelist, which is both reaching the unsaved and equipping the saints to do the same. We have, it has to be more deeply integrated into the larger purpose of apostolic ministry. A, a major function of apostolic ministry is that it sends people whether it's to Kalmykia or Mexico or Alabama or a neighborhood here in Newcastle, the apostles and evangelists get sent and they take us with them. The work of evangelism has had some of the greatest impact in the modern church. But because, um, because of its influence, because it's so pervasive, we're so, uh, it, what the effect has been that we all believe that we can lead someone to the Lord, I think. Amen. Like, we, we have, I, I've got faith that I can pray with someone to accept Christ and that person saved, truly, yeah. on the spot. Yeah. That has been a, the, the long-term effect of evangelists in the church. Most Churches have an evangelical uh, culture and practice among the people. I mean, we're literally a part of the evangelical part of the church, right? There's like Catholic and Protestant, and then under Protestant, you've got mainline denominations, and then you've got evangelicals, right? Which is kind of our, where we're at. And then from there, you've even got more, you know, different titles. But the evangelist has had a massive influence on us. Thank God. But we need more. This church needs more. Teachers teach it. Pastors encourage it. And the evangelist beats the drum everywhere they go. We've got to get souls. We've got to get souls. Now, one of the pitfalls of the evangelist is that everything can be about the lost. Everything can get centered on catering to the needs of the lost. And when churches are led and dominated by either pastoral or evangelistic giftings, the gathering of the saints becomes more about what people want rather than what God wants. That's how we got seeker-sensitive churches. The needs of the lost became more important than the presence of God and the equipping of the saints. Yeah. Again, 
we've got to remember that the kingdom of heaven invading the earth, invading dark places of this world is the number one goal, not the lost invading the church. Talking about priorities. This is not an either or. It takes cooperation between all the ministry gifts to accomplish the primary objective of the church. Because listen, yes, we want the lost to come to this church. I want them here so badly. We want them to come to church. We want people to encounter the love and presence of God and be healed and be delivered in an instant. Yes, we want to build a bridge between the culture of heaven in our church and the church and and the lost. The hurting, the broken. We want changed lives. We want healed lives. We want saved lives. We want transformed lives. But we don't get it with less presence of God. We get it with more. Lives don't change just because we talk them into it with a great argument. They change because they encountered the one who makes all things new. So we make a place for the Holy Spirit to move and then we cooperate with Him by carefully and intentionally aligning ourselves with the flow of heaven, with all its power and freedom to the earth. When we align ourselves in this way, it's as if God Himself pours heaven into His church like Moses poured the oil on Aaron's beard. It's like a funnel. Right? God pours his supernatural world into his end of the funnel and heaven is processed and it's released to the earth through the fivefold ministry giftings. Right? And at the top of the funnel, we've talked about our apostles and prophets. Their attention is focused on heaven, which creates a pull on the supernatural anointing of the kingdom. And then the teachers come and they take the revelation and they bring stability to it and understanding to it through the teaching and the scrutiny of the word of God. And then the pastors come and they help people partake of the banquet feast that becomes available to them through the atmosphere of heaven coming to the earth. And then the evangelists, they come and they take it to the streets. And they make sure that we do not forget the intended target of all this glory that we keep loving and reveling in. It's for the dark, lost world. And the wonderful effect of this is that we then have a supernaturally charged environment that is fully grounded in the truth of the word of God that makes God and the culture of heaven an overwhelming reality that meets people right where they are. Because it was Jesus who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip us, his people, for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God who be- and become mature in attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Everyone say, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I realize I may have created more questions than answers. But this is just an overview of the fivefold. There's a lot more that can and probably should be said. But I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit bring light to the things that are from Him and true and cause you to forget anything that wasn't. Amen? Let's stand. Father, I just want to submit myself and our church again to the heavenly government that you've established and ordained. Where in the church you said first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And we know pastors and evangelists are in that flow, God. And so today, God, we, I, we consecrate ourselves to Ephesians 4.11 to be made mature by experiencing and encountering all the grace and gifts that you have to offer us, God. We don't have to choose to be powerless. We don't have to choose to be only weird and supernatural, God. It is the full package. And so today I am asking for, God, a, 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 as we... in. Enter the season, God, that there is a, a lifting up and an increase of the gifts of the fivefold functioning in this house. God, I'm asking for evangelistic giftings to rise up and to come forth in Jesus' name. If you need to send us someone, God, send us. We can take what we experience here to a dark, lost world, God. So I ask, Father, please help us. So that the flow from heaven to earth can have its full effect, God. So, Father, we commit ourselves to the heaven-centered, supernatural way of life. We commit ourselves to a word-centered life, the foundation of all things, commit ourselves to the people and the needs that you of your sheep and the lost God. Forgive us if we've wrote off some part of, of your leadership team, God. Forgive us. And rekindle these, these fires in us, God. We would function in the fullness of all that Christ is. To be mature, not tossed back and forth any longer in life. So we say thank you, Jesus, for these gifts. Just say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for these gifts. We praise you, God. We worship you that you loved us so much that you gave us representatives of pieces and parts of who Christ was. Our apostle, he was our, pro our prophet, he was our pastor, he is our great teacher, he is the one who brought the gospel, he is the very evangel, the gospel, the good news. We thank you for these gifts, God, that you've given us and we receive them. Thank you, God, for what you're doing as we move into this week of thanksgiving, God. Let us be thankful for you, for the new season, for the change that's coming, for the new directions. God, you're moving us from glory to glory, and there's an invitation here.
for everyone to enter in if they will choose. So I give you thanks as we give thanks this week, as we spend time with family and those who need help. God, we pray that they get connected with those who need, who have it. For we are the family of God. And I am thankful for this family, God. So we bless you today. We honor you. We give you glory because you are so worthy of it. One thing, God, we desire is to gaze on your beauty, to behold your beauty forever, all the days of our lives. We love you, God, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Great Thanksgiving.